This is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Griselda, and this week is devoted to TV. What we watch, how we watch it, and why it matters. I'll be joined by two of our TV writers, India Ross and Harriet Fitch-Little, to discuss the so-called golden age of television, how it evolved from Mad Men and The Wire to Atlanta and Insecure, and what the future holds, now that the likes of Facebook are getting in on the act. After that, I'll speak to Joy Press, the former culture editor of the LA Times, who's just written a book called Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionising Television. Harry in India, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's very nice to be here. India, I'm going to start with you. So we're talking about TV's golden age. What exactly does that mean? Well, golden age is a super contentious term and we could argue all day long as to whether this constitutes one and what the kind of chronology was. But for the purposes of argument, let's just say that it is widely agreed about 15 or 20 years ago, TV underwent this pretty radical creative leap where it's widely perceived that it was elevated from quote unquote entertainment Mm -hmm. to an art form that was like worthy of our attention and worthy of examination in the manner of other art forms like you know literature whatever and it's sort of again like widely agreed although arguably began with this show the sopranos which was created by david chase and focused on this mob man and his family living in suburban new jersey basically the break of this show is that it was able to tell a narrative over a long arc whereas like pre-golden age tv had been like constrained by the economics of broadcasting so shows were required to appeal to an enormous number of people and they also had to exist as like self-contained units for the purposes of syndication so episodes had to stand alone and you were basically totally constrained in what you could do with tv in that era the sopranos and hbo represented a huge break and it was able to like tell us the story of this man that was extraordinarily kind of nuanced and subtle over six I think seasons and it was literally like we were living with this family and so basically there's this idea of a much longer and more sort of complicated narrative arc yeah. and also more complicated men right exactly so yeah. the characters can be more nuanced so and famously when David Chase was trying to pitch The Sopranos to all these traditional networks they the answers he was getting were you know why is this guy in therapy why is there so much swearing why is it so complicated you know TV just was not equipped to deal with these kind of narratives sure. at that time and, and this show broke through and the reason we call it a golden age is that it engendered like so many subsequent shows of that calibre. Yeah, and what you get with the subscription model is the ability to appeal to fewer people, but for those people to be really loyal watchers and viewers, which is, yeah, exactly. I guess, what yeah. we get now. Yeah. Harriet, what's your view of the golden age? Do you think this is a kind of term that's rightly deserved? <laughs> I wasn't watching, or at least I wasn't critically watching TV at the beginning of it. So kind of looking back now... It's not a label that particularly resonates at the idea that Mad Men was as good as it got, or I suppose Breaking Bad maybe, depending which one you want to choose, is kind of a bit laughable. Yeah, I think I read this term... It seems very basic now, Mad Men, in a sense. Yeah, it's this kind of, like, incredibly swaggering, testosterone-fueled show, like beautiful aesthetically, but so many other things have done that now. I really like this term, The Big Bang, for TV the idea that what happened is TV wasn't taken so seriously then you had all these kind of like big swaggering men coming into the TV and like some of them coming over from film and suddenly everyone was like oh this is an actual part of the cultural conversation and something that we are now going to talk about as if it matters and that is still very much the case today. But I don't think it's just a question of our perception. I think the shows literally were better. 
Mad Men is like an amazing achievement in, in any medium, as is The Sopranos. Well, even like, just of longevity. Yeah, I think it's two things. I think it's how we perceive TV, but I also think TV really did undergo this huge change and I think these shows were amazing and the question of golden age is perhaps like a misnomer because golden age suggests a thing that has a beginning and an end Mm. I think big bang is a way better way of looking at this because it was like a transition that occurred and the effects of it we will only know really in hindsight what the arc of that thing was and what its like longevity is in the interview that we're going to hear later from Joy Press, something that I talked to her about is about how, uh, Harriet, you've alluded to this, that the golden age, if we call it that, started very male. And actually what we see through its evolution is that more female makers, more people of colour, things diversify basically. And the stories that we see now yep. are not just the stories of these like complicated, difficult middle-aged white guys. Yeah, and it's funny because people still refer to that as a trend, don't they? The great Shonda Rhimes tweeted recently, she said, you know, women aren't a TV trend, we're half the planet. Which that sums it up, the idea that, you know, we're having this kooky little moment and then it'll get back to the the big boys. To go back to this idea of, like, the shape of this age and what the timescale we're looking at is, we've we've basically seen two quite distinct chapters, which was the first chapter, which was the male chapter, and also interestingly... So things like The Wire, The Sopranos. The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad are, like, the big ones, and that was also the drama era... And now we've had the quote-unquote kind of women, person of colour era, which, as you say, to talk about it as a trend is insane. But the point is that those aren't dramas. They're largely comedies. And the reason being that a comedy is so much cheaper to make, the barrier to entry is lower. And so doors were opened for different voices to come into TV. And there are so many more interesting people making TV now than there were then. As a whole, the medium is way more creative. People use this term dramedy as the kind of drama comedy fusion it's interesting you know indeed you say that it's a kind of economic thing and that it's, it's cheaper to make but yeah. I, I wonder if also there's something about the seriousness with which we as a society by which we take people who are not white men so it seems like the serious troubled protagonist the Walter White in Breaking Bad type person yeah. we don't see as many women or men who are not white In that kind of role, it seems like you have to be troubled and funny as a woman. I think Joy Press's argument in her book is that that's how women got to sneak in the idea that serious TV, you know, in scare quotes, was taken. So they had to go in via the comedy route and then they had to kind of double back in and sneak in the fact that these shows were actually... You know, so it's kind of very, a side door. Yeah, side door, but they're actually dealing with very serious themes. I mean, dramedy is such a bad term. I think sad comms, another one. Yeah. Or I've heard like tragicom used <laughs> but, to talk about but things like fleabag. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. But the point is that all these terms are redundant because genre is becoming irrelevant. When we make a distinction between comedy and drama, what we're really saying is a comedy is a half hour show, a drama is an hour show. Like that's the only legitimate mm. distinction that actually holds at all. To me, like, a dramedy is a comedy whose entire enterprise is not solely geared towards laughs. So it's not like Friends. With exactly, but there, I can't think of any show that, whose goal is geared towards laughs anymore, except perhaps the, like, Will and Grace reboot, which well, is pretty funny, <laughs> to be fair. Indy, you are saying it was about kind of barriers to economic entry, making these, like, shorter comedies. Yeah. It's also probably about the fact that we now stream things, we watch things over a far more concentrated period of time. Yeah. Now when you go back and watch something like Friends, this incredibly self-contained story arc feels yeah. like super weird and yeah, jarring. Yeah, it does, yeah. And very repetitive if you watch lots of them oh, in a row. Imagine repetitive. watching, like, Grey's <laughs> Anatomy now. It. 
But what's interesting is that we think of the past as this era in which TV shows are super formulaic and repetitive and it was just the same stuff again and again and again based on this agreed upon format. And we think of now as this time where it's like, oh, you can make anything, like it's this totally like free creative mm. medium. But what's interesting is I think we are again coalescing on an agreed upon formula, mm-hmm. just a new one. Basically, like streaming TV has started to constitute like a genre in itself. So you get these shows that are really the same as each other, like Mindhunter, Ozark, The End of the Effing World. They all have a very similar form, like a very similar aesthetic. They, so do you mean like episode length? The yeah, like, arc? like the length of the series vary, but largely, yeah, the arc is pretty similar. They all have kind of like a central like question. That, and I think it's like a relic of all lots of things, but like Breaking Bad in particular is the one mm-hmm. that I think shaped TV as we have it now. And it, So we have broken from something, but we've broken into a new mold. I fear that we are tending towards like a new mean, at least with these major streaming services like Netflix and Amazon. There is a sense in which the sort of like burst of creativity has ebbed a little. Right now I'm thinking what today is on TV that's really exciting. Not very many shows. And what you're saying about conservatism, that kind of applies to format as well, isn't it? It's interesting we talk about this as being like a very free moment, but then you look at all the shows that started as web series in this slightly anarchic space, like Broad City, but also something like High Maintenance, this show about Mm -hmm. New York uh, drug dealer, which I think was basically made by a load of quite bored but very talented friends (laughs) who just put up episodes online of different length. Both those shows eventually got squeezed into Into this this standardised format, right? So when we say that everything's like a more of a free-for-all now. Yeah. Actually, everything's like ending up back in the same place. Yeah. But there are undeniably more voices. I mean, we wouldn't have heard from the girls in Broad City or Issa Rae, Insecure, High Maintenance. These are quite fringy, in inverted commas, people, in a sense. These are yeah. not the kind of Sopranos guys. So I think there's these like two forces that are acting in opposition. It'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. There's the force that we've discussed, which is this tendency increasingly towards safety and away from risk-taking on the part of like major streamers because I think the environment is so competitive it no longer makes sense for like Amazon to make transparent because mm, which is the Jill Soloway amazing and, show and, yeah, yeah. And, and we've talked about off mic about how you know Amazon is making this quite explicit pivot away from mm. more interesting like indie content towards Jeff Bezos who's like the CEO of Amazon announced that he was looking for like quote his Game of Thrones yeah. there is this tendency towards blockbusterization. Mm. But at the same time, as you say, there are so many more players in the field that there are inevitably more voices and these two things are acting in in opposition. I can't really see how it's going to resolve itself. It's It's interesting as well because there's a kind of arms race, like you say, it's so competitive for subscribers that even just the budgets of these shows are insane. It feels almost like the kind of last days of Rome or something. It's so bloated, so lavish. It was something like 15 million dollars an episode for the final series of Game of Thrones. The crown was only quite a little bit cheaper than that but this is like film money we keep thinking we've hit a ceiling it's kind of laughable now to think that we thought that the age of Netflix and Amazon was like it they are only spending more and more and more and then there are these new entrants like Facebook Apple YouTube who are piling money into this thing and it's how big can it get there was a lot of discussion a few years ago I suppose it's still ongoing about you know peak TV and whether it could keep on getting bigger but a lot of that conversation seemed to stem from this misperception that there was only a certain number of people who were capable of making TV. I suppose what's happened, the reason it can keep on getting bigger or we've seen it being able to keep on getting bigger is just because you've got more and more minority voices coming in, both actors making the shows. And that doesn't seem to be something... I don't know that these discussions of 
peak TV or where we can go next really yeah. thought about. Because also, I guess the audience is splintering. There are more platforms now yeah. for, for this yeah. stuff than there used to be. I think like a really interesting parallel is if you look at like the movie industry, I guess the kind of like related era would be like the 1970s in Hollywood which was like this period of unprecedented creativity that's often kind of linked with the golden age of TV Mm -hmm. and what happened with that is what seems to kind of be happening now in TV is that blockbusters arrived and people just realized that why would you not make jaws when you know you're going to get like enormous audiences and and eventually you just ended up with this what we basically have now which is this landscape that's totally bifurcated between like huge tentpole productions that everyone watches and then a sort of indie scene that exists underneath it and it's conceivable that tv could end up polarized in that way like if you know if everyone produced a game of thrones that's what the landscape could look like. But then they're also continuing and then they're to make also, shows like Transparent or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So you don't think anything's really changing in the long run? You think we're kind of going through this this moment of <laughs> disruption Do I have a the attitude about TV? I don't know, because like, as you say, Griselda, like, there are so many more voices coming and there are like so many interesting things. Like you mentioned Shonda Rhimes earlier, like yeah. she's been signed to... Netflix and so has Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. who are like basically the two biggest producers in TV and who are two people who are really interesting because it's been perceived that they've been slightly hamstrung by the constraints of the networks they were on and people are like really excited to see what they'll do with the creative freedom that's given to them by and the, like the resources of Netflix and stuff. Yeah and Shonda so, Rhimes has done great things for and has diversifying done, the kind of people that we see on TV. Yeah and she's a great example of someone who has done amazing things even given the constraints of quote-unquote old-fashioned TV. What do you guys think in terms of the future of, so people like Facebook are now getting in on the act and producing or being about to produce original content for TV, for kind of streaming. It's not it's not just Netflix and Amazon anymore. Facebook's interesting in that it's free, isn't mm. it? That's a competitive angle that it's got. Just looking down the list of the first shows that they're going to put out, I don't actually know because none of them really interested me. Um, yeah. It's a lot like Kim Kardashian's doing <laughs> something. So <laughs> but it feels quite trashy, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it's, or it's just like really easily viral teachable moments or kind of like cute wholesome content that will do well with like the mum's generation on Facebook because that's like a huge part Mm. of their audience now Mm. yeah it seems more like it's going to be just the equivalent of a different channel on it's like going to be the ITV of (laughs) but um, but what they want what Facebook wants is to get a much younger audience in isn't it this is really Mm. interesting when we get into these questions of demographic the other thing is we've thought about the golden age is just this thing that exists in a vacuum and for everyone and it's just this art form but actually I mean largely like streaming services have been catering to quite a specific demographic which is quote-unquote millennials up to whatever age and it's weird to think that Facebook's interests are not necessarily the same as like Netflix and Amazon so Facebook has like a vested interest in as you say Harriet in satisfying like the mums but also Facebook is losing Gen Z users by the day, so they need to capture... Hang on, which like, one's Gen Z? The so ones kind of like the post-millennials. Post-millennials, yeah. so yeah. the kids. So the kids, <laughs> the kids don't use Facebook anymore. So we Facebook, them at the FT. <laughs> no, <laughs> we do not. The, um, there's a show that we've talked about, which is called Scam, which was this huge hit in Scandinavia, a Norwegian web series. It very much like Skins kind of told these adolescent teen narratives, whatever, but... What was interesting about it was that the characters had lives that existed beyond the show. They exist, They had social media accounts and they would like post Instagram stories and Facebook updates and this content would be compiled into what we would traditionally describe as episodes. And it was like this really radical show that was a huge success and Facebook has bought Scam and is doing a, a remake that I think will come out 
probably later this year. It may well be terrible, but it's a really interesting idea. And Well, it's just a very different way of watching TV as well, isn't it? Because, you know, if there's an episode that's set at a party at whatever, midnight, that's when it'll go out. Or if it's a school Mm -hmm. classroom scene at 11am, it'll get posted then. And you sort of watch these as you get them and then they're collected at the end of the week. So it's it's not like binge watching. It's actually a move away from binge watching. Yeah. Scan made me think about exactly what you were saying before India about the fact that, you know, TV is now catering to the generation below us. It's the first thing I was kind of reading about it and watching a bit of it and feeling like a bit lonely and like this very clear sense that this wasn't for me. <laughs> right, it's crazy. And I was like feeling yeah. a bit grumpy about it. I was <laughs> like, I can't, I mean, I could consume it again, like what we were saying about things tending towards conservatism. Yeah. I can consume it in these like weekly episodes yeah. that they put together and that'll be fine. Yeah. But essentially this is a way of making TV or programming that is not intended for Millennials. It's intended it was for the, the generation underneath the us. The bit where the boyfriend climbs in through the bedroom window that I was like, <laughs> yeah, like, it's been a while. <laughs> and just, but just talking about the general quality of TV, you compare that to Skins. I tried to rewatch Skins a couple of months ago because it was one of these ones that, you know, Netflix had bought up wholesale. It's terrible. Is it really? No, you cannot. Oh, I loved it. Shade Skins. Yeah. Go back and watch original. it. The, <laughs> like the plots are bad, the characters are bad, the I, filming's I'm really bad. I'm not this, Harriet. This is absolutely blasphemy. Like, I was a teenager at that age, but I watched the characters on Scam and I found them so much more they are, relatable. They're, like they're probably just a bit more Scandinavian yeah. and cool, let's be honest. But I think it's interesting, the generational thing is interesting because if we think of it's increasingly useful to think of tv as video content and think about like what that means and if we're talking about gen z or like teenagers today like this is the first generation that may not have really experienced terrestrial tv as like a broadcasting Mm. medium in the way that we Mm. did and so their whole conception of video and like what is a normal like schedule to be watching video like what length it would be is totally different to them and they're, they're the generation that use Snapchat all the time and like Twitch and stuff like that that I have no interest in and so mm. the idea of what TV is and like what it should constitute in terms of length and form and all that could totally change when you have a whole new generation that has a totally different outlook on mm. anything could happen with it for this generation really. And Twitch which you mentioned they're developing <laughs> these kind of choose your own adventure things for TV aren't they which right. is a concept that leaves me totally cold because I just feel like it's yeah. a one trick isn't it you guys are sounding it? very old no, no, <laughs> no I, I actually know. think this is the same for anything it's the same for theatre podcast is aging like, <laughs> <laughs> but honestly like once you've like chosen the outcome of a scenario once you're like oh that was good you don't it's, it's the idea that you, you think, as the viewer have a kind of agency yeah, it's, there are lots of possible directions that we might be going in which do sound exciting if yeah. actually slightly too adventurous maybe I'd quite happy to just sit down and w- yeah. watch TV to round up what I'd like you guys to to recommend one show each or something that you think has been really important in this whole discussion of golden age TV that you've been talking about or something that you just love okay well I'm going to go for Atlanta which is a show that's brought it does exist in the UK but it's on quite a niche channel but it's on FX in the US and it's a as we've said before dramedy by this guy called Donald Glover who's this amazing like polymath who was a comedian a comedy writer had a really successful rap career anyway made this show and it's about he's the protagonist and he's just this kind of down and out guy in this city in america and it's this amazing commentary on like race and identity but wrapped into this totally surreal and like genre bending exercise in like i can't even really explain it it's just it's an incredible feat of creativity and i think it's kind of the biggest 
break there's been in the past at least like two or three years in TV. And it's just started a new season. Just started the second season, which it's, is amazing. It's also super interesting in terms of format because before we recorded this, you sent us a suggestion of an episode which we could watch. Yeah. And it was like the seventh episode in the season. Yeah. And it was an entirely self-contained, yeah. different story. Mm. And that's something that yeah, feels new and exciting. It's very like non-linear. He's totally, he just has not adhered to any of the like, principles that you should adhere to when you make a TV show and it somehow it just works perfectly. All right, how about you? I would root for Broad City, which I think we're going to hear from Joy a bit more about in the interview. I think partly because of the way it was made, the fact that it did begin as a web series made by these two young women living in New York who play kind of exaggerated comic versions of themselves and Mm. they basically spend their time hanging out getting stoned and not paying much attention to anyone or anything other than each other and their friendship it's an Um, amazing portrayal of female friendship i think i mean people say girls is but this is something different yeah Yeah. and i think the reason that it's different and the reason that it's interesting in the context of this conversation is that if the kind of big break of the golden age we were discussing before was to put one of the things it did was to put bad men on TV and make us kind of root for them or at least be like really interested in them. When that same thing happened with women, we also got very insecure women and very neurotic women. And those were all really good and important things to portray, very much direction that girls went in. And what's so nice about Broad City is that they're these totally flawed, often really terrible characters, but they've just got like no guilt <laughs> whatsoever. No <filter>. <laughs> that feels like a really like powerful move forward. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. like there's massive self confidence. Yeah. Great. On that note, thanks Harriet and thanks India. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Next up, we're going to hear my phone call with Joy Press, who is the former culture editor of the LA Times, a TV writer, and she's just written a book, which I've just read, and it's really excellent, called Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionising Television. It's an interesting book because it takes a long view. It starts in the 1980s with figures like Roseanne Barr and goes up right to the present moment to Lena Dunham, Amy Schumer, Jill Soloway, and it looks at female showrunners and how their position within the television industry, mainly in the US, has developed over these years and how now we actually do hear from different voices than we used to. It's interesting because Joy really knows about the mechanics of the industry and how it works. And she talks a lot about how it's structured, how people are employed, the way that it does become a boys club because people employ people who look like them, sound like them, with whom they're comfortable. And this is how the cycle continues. If you've watched shows like Girls, Transparent, Orange is the New Black, Insecure, Broad City, you'll love this book. It's a really insightful and entertaining journey through women in pop culture. So, Joy, one of the things I'm really interested in and that we talk about a lot on this podcast is how culture as in the arts shapes wider culture as in society. And I wondered what your view was on that, specifically with regards to TV. How do you think what we see on screen changes what we see in in real life? I think there's no doubt that TV has become really central to pop culture and People spend such an enormous amount of time with these characters. There's a sense in which they become both role models and a hint of possibility of what people can be. I mean, good and bad. Mm. For women, you know, I feel that there has been not a huge range of options until recent years. I mean, there have always been female characters, but they've really been 
either kind of marginal or passive, very, very narrow sort of pathways that female characters could take traditionally on television. And that has really started to change over the years. And do you think that that women make different TV shows to those that men make? I mean, if you if you were to see something blind without knowing the gender of the director, do you think you would have a good idea of whether it was made by a man or a woman? Well, it's very hard to generalize because I think there are uh, shows that you, you would not be able to tell the gender. I think that in recent years, there have been female television creators and writers who've really focused on female-centered TV and, and really worked on creating characters that reflect a kind of reality that they experienced. And recently we've had people like Lena Dunham and Jill Soloway actually use what used to be an academic term, the female gaze. And they feel very strongly that, you know, there is a way that women are portrayed that is very passive and object-like traditionally. And they really want, when you watch a, a scene featuring a woman, you want to feel like that woman is in her body, that she's not a character who's being watched, but she's actually living. She's, if she's in a sex scene, she's feeling pleasure. She's actually experiencing the world the way that women experience the world. And that, that idea of the female gaze seems particularly important when it comes to, you mentioned sex scenes and, and any kind of nudity, really. I mean, in girls, it's such a good example because the nudity feels quite everyday. I mean, it's just what it's like to be a woman and to get dressed in the morning. Yeah, one of the, the showrunners, Lena Dunham's partner, Jenny Connor, said to me, there are probably more bathroom sets and more bathroom scenes than on any other show on, <laughs> on TV because they're not trying to capture the character's at their best or at their sexiest. They're really trying to capture these women unawares as they are. And it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I mean, I think Girls is, is a show that got an awful lot of hatred and discomfort. And that was sort of intentional. But it also really points out just how little we've seen women that way on the small screen. We really don't expect to see women not looking pretty. In the introduction, I think it is, to your book, you write that with regards to this this idea of the representation of, of women on, on TV, you write, what looked like the grand march of progress turned out to be one of history's grand zigzags. And you're writing about the sort of current political moment, about a, a sense of backlash and reaction. Do you think that there's any sense in which a kind of golden age for women in and on TV is now over? I hope not. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's over. I don't know that I can predict what's going to happen. I, I feel like there has been a surge in the last eight years of female-created, female-centric TV, and it hasn't stopped. And in fact, it's only picked up speed since 2015 in the UK and the US. There's an exciting amount of really creative and wild TV by women with female characters. So I don't think that it's going to stop. You know, at least in America, the TV industry is in a real state of chaos with all of the streaming networks. I mean, you've got Netflix, you've got Amazon, you've got, you know, Apple getting into it. That has opened up a lot of space for new voices that kind of had been locked out of the Hollywood system. And I can't imagine that these women will all go away. And I also think there's going to be an enormous wave of women, African-American creators who are, who are going to be inspired by this and they're going to figure out their own way in. 
looking at shows a few years ago, like The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, there was a sense, and you, and you write about this in the book, that prestige TV was about the troubled male protagonist. Do you think we still, as a society or as societies, struggle to take women seriously, to have serious female protagonists? I think we do. I don't think we want to think of ourselves that way, mm. but I think it's pretty clear when we talk about the, that we're in the golden age of TV, we do think about it as this sort of macho male auteur programming, you know, when men are sort of struggling or there's blood or there's, you know, then, then it feels serious. When it is a woman sort of grappling with the, you know, awful, terrible things of her life or, or even just the mundane elements of her life, it is, you know, really taken much less seriously as an art form. And I think a lot of the TV shows in, in recent years that have been created by women very much kind of slip through those genre categories because they almost have to be funny or almost have to make us feel more comfortable. I think it's changing a little bit, but it's definitely still true on television. Your book sort of, the story starts really in the late 80s. Can you say a bit about how shows like Murphy Brown and Roseanne paved the way for the sort of women that we see on TV nowadays? Yeah, I started the book with Murphy Brown and Roseanne, which premiered in 1988, like a month apart from each other. And America was sort of in the middle of what they called the, came to be called the culture wars. I mean, it was a very polarized political situation, much like it is today. And these two shows that were driven by women with these incredibly aggressive female characters, they were really fierce and funny and not really like anything we'd seen on television before. And they were very different. Murphy Brown was very elite newswoman and Roseanne was a very poor working class mother. They became really lightning rods for, for politics and, and shaped a lot of people's ideas. These were shows that, you know, 20, 30 million people were watching. They were watching all around the world. And they also set a groundwork for how women could behave on TV and how you could go after what you wanted. I mean, certainly Murphy Brown, you know, every week she would fire a different assistant. She was really obnoxious and, <laughs> and, and unlikable in some ways, although, you know, very funny and people really did love the character. But both of those bucked this, this idea on television that female characters really had to be, had to be nice. And do you think this this idea of likability is a problem sort of behind the camera as well? There's this idea that in all sorts of professions, women who are assertive, who are in positions of power, that they're polarising, that they have a harder time than men. That was one of the most interesting things for me was when I was talking to, to the women who created these shows, over and over again, I would hear that, you know, they had been told that they were difficult and something that has I think, come out a little bit in the conversations since the, the Me Too uh, movement has started over and over again, sort of being considered problematic if you were aggressive. And, you know, to be a TV writer, to, to run a show, you have to know your vision and fight for it. And I, I don't think the male creators of, of television have any problem speaking up and fighting for what they care about. 
In terms of the depiction of women on screen, realistic female bodies and female sexuality felt fairly taboo, even with shows like Sex and the City, until Lena Dunham's Girls came along. At least that's the sense I got from it. I wondered if there was anything else that you feel you would like to see portrayed on TV that's just not there at the moment? Well, it's interesting because I think you don't really know what you're missing until it appears. Mm. And that was what I realized over and over again. As a child, I was watching television and, you know, I didn't really understand what I was missing. I mean, I knew that there weren't an awful lot of characters out there who, who reflected my life or inspired me. But, it, you know, it wasn't really until these shows appeared. So you have a Murphy Brown or you have a Liz Lemon on 30 Rock, you know, mm. and you, you have um, Lena Dunham's character, Hannah Horvath, and, or um, Nancy Botwin, who's on Weeds, the sort of suburban mom who, who sells drugs and is a very sort of out there character in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I certainly couldn't have said to you, I miss these characters. I could never, you know, dreamed up the women of Absolutely Fabulous or Broad City. But I feel that the more voices that are out there, the latest one that I'm sort of in love with is Issa Rae's Insecure. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know that I was missing Issa until it appeared on television. No, I think that's absolutely right. And it's interesting that now we do have this diversity of voices you get for example in Insecure and I think in Girls as well a very very realistic quite difficult to watch representation of what it feels like to to feel awkward and then when you contrast that with something like Broad City it's this amazing fantasy of what the world would be like if if women owned the streets of New York if they owned toilet humor and fart jokes and they were the ones in kind of with sexual power there's something so fun and refreshing about that but I almost see Broad City like a fantasy in that sense. Oh, it is. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly liberating fantasy of life if you didn't have all of those insecurities and weren't so reined by what people thought of you and worrying about things. It's not that they don't have to have jobs and all of those things. They live in not very nice apartments, but they are just absolutely enjoying their lives and each other and their friendship is just absolutely central to the show or something you know someone like Mindy Kaling who created similarly a kind of fantasy reality of a gynecologist who also just kind of has this very untethered id and sort of acts like a guy kind of goes through the world as if she's a guy and doesn't think about the fact that she is this Indian American woman who people are looking at in a certain way. She's just going to go through the world as if she has absolute confidence in herself. And for most of us, we don't walk through the world like that. It's sort of a wonderful thing to experience vicariously. Mm. And finally, what do you think the the answer is to kind of you, you talk about this as the it's almost like it's the start of a revolution. We're seeing more of it but it's not like the revolution is complete. Do you think it's just simply a case of there should be fewer jobs for the boys, these old networks that have existed where friends employ each other on TV sets, that we have to just see an end to that? Well, I mean, that is the problem, of course, is that when you say there need to be more jobs for women, well, what, you know, what happens to the people who are currently getting the jobs? But you really want to even the playing field. I think there is actually a conversation happening now. And, you know, there was a conversation sparked by the Oscars about systemic ways to change things. One of the interesting things is when you look at the statistics, 
when there's a female showrunner, when there's a woman in charge of the production, they hire more women in front of the camera, behind the camera, the writers, the percentage of women is much, much higher. So, you know, they're already sort of approaching it in an inclusive way. And, you know, that's the hope. And it's hard to legislate these things, but certainly it's not happening organically. So you don't want to replace the old boys network with an old girls network. You really just want to have a situation where there is a way in for talented people of all genders and races. Frankly, it's going to benefit everyone because the more experiences people are bringing to the show, the more interesting it's going to be, the broader the imagination, the palette of topics and and ideas. So it's only going to benefit Hollywood to be more inclusive, but it's, it's very hard to do because someone gets a job, that means someone doesn't. But I think that that conversation is happening. And I think you're right. I think that the revolution is definitely not over. It, it really is just starting. That's it for this week. Joy Press's book, Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionising Television, is out now. And you can find TV criticism and more by India and Harriet at ft.com. Next week is our final episode of the series. I'll be speaking to Sarah Churchwell and Peter Aspden about the birth and death of American Cool. And I'll also speak to the experimental theatre director, Simon McBurney, about his hit show, The Encounter, which returns to the Barbican in London next month. You can subscribe to everything else on any podcast app and listen online at ft.com slash everything else. And please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show at facebook.com slash everything else podcast or send us an email at everything else at ft.com. This podcast is produced by Chica Ayres. I've been Griselda Murray-Brown and our music is composed and produced by Fatten. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.